We're going to read the scriptures now. And so let's stand. And as you stand, uh, remember that we stand or fall on this book. We stand or fall. So if you join me in standing and turning to uh, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use the Pew Bible uh, that is in front of you on page 629, 629. Exciting story from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 31. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to the helpless man, by what means he has been made well? Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. And when they had commanded them to go outside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a not for indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because the people, since they had all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. 
and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported to all the chief, to all uh, reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, "Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said." Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against us, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose de determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on, your, on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and ask that you would do it again. That you would do it again, and again, and again. That we, as your people, and as this church, may humble ourselves and may pray, and that you may fill us, control us, lead us, enable us to walk in your spirit so that we are bold for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your spirit would move in the preaching of your word, that Jesus would be exalted, our hearts would be convicted, our lives would be changed, and Easter would not be just a holiday, and not just a religious service, but it would be a lifestyle. And that we would pray and go forth and bring the healing gospel message of Jesus Christ to the lost for having been here today. We pray this, we expect this in the name, the only name, the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, great to be here as we continue on our series through the book of Acts. We are calling this series by the title of Unstoppable, Daring to Be the Church on Mission. And uh, we began this series a few weeks ago, and we started in chapter 1, and we're now progressing our way through, and we're now coming upon chapter 4 here. In fact, actually, chapter 4, if you were here last Sunday, you may notice it's really a continuation of what took place in chapter 3. And so chapter 3 of Acts, chapter 4 of Acts kind of go together. And, uh, and so we're going to continue on the same theme here. Last Sunday, if you were here, uh, you may remember that we, we focused on one particular question. And we took time to answer this question. And that question was simply, does the church, do we as a church, does the church have anything to offer to the world? Do we have anything relevant to offer to the world? 
And we saw from what took place in Acts chapter 3 that the resounding answer is yes, we do. In fact, because of Jesus Christ, we have something essential to offer. We have something eternal to offer to the world. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter offered to this layman. And we offer the same thing. In fact, because of Jesus Christ, we have the same thing to offer. Just as Peter said to the lame man in chapter 3, what I have I give you. We now proclaim and we offer to the world at large what we have we give you. And so it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we can offer to people power to people powerless to help themselves. It's because of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have the greatest offer there is in all the world. Listen, we have a message of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We proclaim and we share a message that, hey, your sins can be forgiven. Totally forgiven. And isn't that what we all need as human beings who are filled with sin and self? Our message of hope is that you can be reconciled to God Almighty. Yes, we are born in our sin, and we are born enemies of God. But through the gospel, through what Jesus Christ did on the cross in His resurrection, we now, through faith in Jesus Christ, can be reconciled to God. We can now have the gift of eternal life. We can have the power of the Holy Spirit. And included in this offer of hope, the offer of the gospel, is the hope of a universal restoration to come. In other words, a day is coming, as we saw last Sunday, when all things in this world, all wrong things in this world, will be made right. And the effects of sin will be abolished forever. No more cancer, no more disease, no more poverty, no more violence, no more suffering, no more death. That is a day we look forward to. That is a day of hope that we proclaim and so the church is not confined to the sidelines. We're not confined to the sidelines doing its little own religious thing that's irrelevant to the rest of the world. Oh no, as the church, folks, listen to me, we have something essential and eternal to offer to the world. We have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of this that we saw in chapter 3, now brings us to another question that is, rises to the surface here in Acts chapter 4. And that question is this. Will the world always accept what the church has to offer? And what we're going to see this morning here in Acts chapter 4 is that we better get ready. And here's why. We better get ready because the proclamation of the gospel results in opposition to the gospel. And that's what we see taking place in Acts 4 and through the rest of the book of Acts. In fact, Luke here lets us know in Acts 4 that the early church's message of the gospel, while empowered by the Spirit and while it is accepted by many people, in fact, Luke tells us, here in Acts chapter 4, that as many as 5,000 men alone came to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so 
many believed it, many received it and accepted it, and yet it is also met with opposition from others. So proclamation of the gospel results in opposition to the gospel. And this opposition is just the start of much more to come in the book of Acts. In fact, it's interesting, after Acts 3, only three chapters in the rest of the book do not mention some type of opposition to the gospel or some type of persecution to the church. So no, the world does not always like it when the church offers what it has, when the church proclaims with boldness and conviction the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the case in the first century, and it's been the case throughout church history, and it is certainly the case even today. So get ready. We need to get ready. Proclamation of the gospel results in opposition to the gospel. And we see this firsthand in the very beginning Verses here in Acts chapter 4. Look at it with me one more time. When Luke writes, Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he writes in verses 1 and 2, Now as they spoke to the people. Who's doing the speaking here? Predominantly it is Peter, but John is right there with him. So we have two disciples, two apostles here that are doing the speaking. Predominantly Peter and the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon Peter and John, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So what we have here immediately, in the very first verses, after Peter heals this lame man through the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of Jesus Christ, and then Peter proclaims the gospel, immediately after that, we have opposition to the gospel. Peter and John were doing two things, that greatly disturbed the Jewish religious leaders of that day and age. They were teaching the people about Jesus, and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And look what happened to them for doing that. Look what happened to our dynamic duo in verse 3. And it says, and they laid hands on them. That's opposition. That's hostility. That's persecution. And they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So, question. If you're Peter and John, how do you respond to this? Even today, in our age, if you encounter opposition for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, how should we respond? That's an important question because it's very, very real even in our day and age, just as it was for Peter and John back in the first century. And I would submit to us, I would propose to us, based on the example of Peter and John, that our response should be one of boldness. We should respond with the boldness of Peter and John. Because, listen, what we have is the gospel. But what we need is boldness to be witnesses for Jesus in the face of hostility. In fact, it's interesting in this chapter, I don't know if you caught it while Chris was reading this passage for us, all of, uh, in chapter 4 here, but three different times Luke mentions the boldness of Peter and John. Did you notice it? Look at with me in verse 14. Drop down to Acts 4, verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, 
and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized they had been with Jesus. And then you drop down to verse 29, and it says, Now, Lord, look on their hearts and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. And then in the very last verse here of our passage, our text, verse 31, it says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with what? Boldness. Now, I hope you're seeing a theme here in these verses in chapter 4. It is all about boldness. Boldness for Jesus in the face of opposition, in the face of hostility, and later it becomes even in the face of persecution. And I would submit to you that boldness ought to be characterizing our lives. That the boldness that we see by the disciples here in Acts 4 ought to characterize our lives. It ought to characterize the life of this church. We ought to be bold for Jesus. Why? Because we have something essential to offer, something eternal to offer in the glorious hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet, if truth be known, and I raise my hand, I'm in this boat as well. This is an area that many of us struggle in. Many of us struggle when it comes time to actually proclaim the gospel. That is to actually verbalize the gospel. To verbally share Christ in the same way that we see here in Acts chapter 4. The truth is most of us here today are not like Peter. We're not like John. We're not like the Apostle Paul that we're going to see later on in Acts. We're not like the modern-day Franklin Graham even. I mean, have you ever seen Franklin Graham on Larry King Live in the past? I mean, Larry King's not on TV anymore, but, but it, when he was, and he would oftentimes have Franklin Graham on his TV show. Have you ever see one of those shows? You can almost bank on it. Within 30 seconds, no matter what the topic was of the evening, Franklin Graham's talking about the gospel. And he's witnessing to Larry King on TV. And I'm thankful for people like Franklin Graham and people who have that kind of boldness. But the truth is, most of us here are not as bold to share the gospel as we ought to be. So what I want us to do this morning, I want us to look at this passage, and I want to hopefully motivate us and encourage us to be bold for Jesus, even in the face of opposition and hostility. And I want to do so with four keys for boldness for Jesus out of this passage. Notice the first one is to remember the saving power of Jesus. Remember the saving power of Jesus. Now, you would think that the miraculous healing of the lame man, the crippled man in Acts chapter 3 in the temple, would have brought the re religious leaders of the day, you thought it would have brought joy to their lives, right? After all, they're religious leaders. They're for the people, right? You would think that. A man crippled from birth has been carried by friends and family to the temple for years to beg for money because he can't get there himself, and now he's miraculously healed by the power of God. And Luke makes sure to tell us in Acts 3 that he was leaping and praising God after he was healed. In other words, he was jumping for joy in the temple. That's why it's, it's okay to be excited in church. When we're singing, man, and like the praise team just sing a song, it's okay to say, well, 
yeah, man, that was awesome, you know, and get a little excited. We don't have to be, you know, dead here. It's all right to be alive. Jump for joy. And who could blame this man after being crippled for 40 years and now all of a sudden he can walk for the first time in his life. But, man, not everyone is excited about this. The religious leaders are greatly annoyed by this healing. And more than that, they are greatly annoyed by Peter's message of Jesus Christ. Yes, we have the good news of the gospel, but the truth is this. Notice the truth here. In this world, we will encounter opposition to the truth of God. We will encounter opposition to the name of Jesus Christ. That is the truth. Think about why that is as Peter proclaimed the gospel here. Why is it that the Sadducees were so upset? Why is it that they were so resistant to the message that Peter was proclaiming? Notice what it says. Go back to verse 2. It says, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So why wouldn't the religious leaders want people taught? After all, they're religious leaders. That's that's part of what their responsibilities are, is to teach the people. Peter's teaching the people about Jesus. Why wouldn't they want the resurrection from the dead taught? Well, for one, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Whether it's general resurrection of the dead or specifically even Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe it. didn't fit within their theological framework. And so because the message that Peter proclaimed, it threatened everything they stood for. It threatened everything they held dear. And that's why they didn't like this. It threatened their authority to teach the people themselves. It threatened their power over the people. It threatened their status in the religious community. It threatened their relationships with people. It threatened their long-held beliefs, including their denial of the resurrection, which Peter's now boldly proclaiming. Listen, the gospel message, in other words, was threatening. It was offensive to the religious leaders. And I would submit to you today that, yes, while it is a glorious message that Jesus died for sinners, amen? And that Jesus rose again, hallelujah. But at the same time, it is a threatening message. It is a message, let's be honest, it threatens our pride, does it not? The gospel is a message that threatens our own self-sufficiency. It threatens our lifestyle. It threatens our relationships. It even threatens, perhaps, some of our long-held beliefs. The message, though, that we proclaim is good news, but at the same time, it is threatening to undo everything about everyone to whom we proclaim it, and because of that, we will often receive opposition. And so here's what I want to suggest to us as we are bold for Jesus with the gospel message, as we receive opposition to the gospel, instead of letting that opposition make us bitter, why not let that opposition make us bold? You say, what do you mean by that? How does opposition elicit boldness in my own heart? Well, simply this, by remembering that, hey, if God could save me, then God can save anyone. I mean, if God could save a sinner like me, 
One that Romans describes as not righteous, as not understanding, as not seeking God. In fact, even hating God. If God could save me and if God could save you, the truth is that God can save anybody. That's the glorious hope we have in the gospel. And so if we're going to be bold for Jesus, then we must remember the saving power of Jesus for all of humanity. Lord, Listen, the Lord can save anyone. And that includes anyone here this morning. No matter your background, no matter your sins, no matter how ugly your past may be, the Lord's grace is greater than all of that. When we humble ourselves, when we see ourselves as a sinner who is in need of a Savior, and we repent of our sins, and we come to the cross, and we cry out to God, Save me. I believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, as your Son, as the one who died for my sins, as the one who rose again, and now gives me power to live for your honor and your glory. Listen, when we are willing to do that, God can save you, anyone, regardless of our past, our sinfulness. Which brings us to the first takeaway here. Boldness is birthed by recalling God's mercy toward you. Boldness is birthed by recalling God's mercy toward you. And isn't that what we see Peter and John doing here in Acts chapter 4? The religious leaders charge Peter and John, get this, not to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. But notice what they say if you drop down to verses 19 through 20. It says, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And what is it that they have seen? Oh, they've seen the resurrected Jesus. They've heard him teach to them. And it is so embedded in their lives now that they cannot but help but speak the things which they have seen and heard. In other words, the gospel is overflowing in them. And it's hopefully overflowing in us. The gospel is so part of our lives that it, it must come out. It's who we are. In fact, I, I can't help but be reminded of the story. If you go back to the gospel of Mark chapter 5, where, where Jesus heals this demonic man who is, quote, Mark describes him as who is out of his mind, he's naked, and he's running among the tombs. Some of you may remember that story. And after Jesus heals him, it says that he is now clothed, and he's in his right mind, and then he asks Jesus a question. Can I follow you? And do you remember what Jesus tells him? Jesus says, no, you cannot follow me. Rather, go back to your own family and friends and do what? And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. That's what Peter and John are doing here. That's what we need to be doing. Simply sharing what Jesus has done for us. And the boldness is birthed out of that when we remember exactly what Jesus has done for us. When we remember his mercy in our lives. Listen, the surest way to to birth boldness, to elicit boldness in our hearts, and I would say even to shake ourselves from indifference and perhaps even a lack of concern for the lost, 
is to return again and again and again to the gospel and to remember God's mercy on my life. And if God can save me, God can save you. God can save my neighbor. God can save my coworker, my family member, my friend, whoever it may be. A second key to boldness for Jesus is to realize the profound power of the gospel. There are many people here today who are genuinely concerned about sharing the gospel with lost people. Many of you want to see God work in the lives of your family and friends and neighbors. We want to see the gospel advance, but many of us are also intimidated when it gets right down to it. Many of us are concerned. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I just mess it up? What if they ask me a question I don't know the answer to? And we have all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs. But that's when we need to realize that the book of Acts is not primarily about the power of any one person. Rather, it's about the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ from start to finish. Which brings us to another truth here. We see the power of the gospel in the life of the lame man and even in the life of the early church here in Jerusalem. You see, the crowd that day, they thought that the lame man was somehow healed by Peter himself. Now, Peter played a part in it, but notice what Peter does twice. Peter tells them, going back to Acts 3 and verse 12, he says, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? In other words, why do you marvel at this miracle of this man being healed? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? In other words, Peter is saying to them, listen, it's not about us. We didn't do this. We didn't cause this lame man to walk. And we see the same thing in now in chapter 4, look at verse 10, where Peter says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and then he adds this little comment, whom you crucified, and then he adds a bigger comment, whom God raised from the dead, by him... This man stands here before you whole. I love it. Peter is unmistakable. Peter is unapologetic regarding the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter and the rest of the disciples deeply believed that there was power in the name of Jesus. Oh no, not in some kind of mystical way or magical way, but by virtue of who Jesus is and by what Jesus has done on the cross and in his resurrection, there's power in that name, the name of Jesus. And we see it as the layman jumps for joy and he praises God. And we see it even in the life of the early church. I mean, how else do you explain this phenomenal, rapid growth of the early church here in Jerusalem? I mean, after Peter preached the gospel on the day of Pentecost, Luke tells us that about 3,000 souls were added to the church. And then here in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, Peter again proclaims the gospel, and he says, however, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So in a space of just a few weeks, the church in Jerusalem has grown, as some scholars estimate, to around, get this, 15,000 people as a result of the power of the gospel. So here's the takeaway on this. Look at it in your notes coming up on the screen. Ultimately, boldness is not rooted in our personality or intelligence, but in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, what we see throughout the book of Acts is that 
all kinds of people are proclaiming the gospel with boldness. You have Peter and John, obviously, here in Acts chapter 4. Later on, we also see ordinary people like Stephen and Philip and Barnabas proclaiming the gospel. And what this shows us is that boldness, listen to me, is not dependent upon one particular personality. Ultimately, it doesn't matter whether we are outgoing or not, whether we are an extrovert or an introvert, or whether we are socially awkward or not. Nor is boldness rooted in our intelligence. Look what the religious leaders said about Peter and John in verse 13. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were, yeah, uneducated, and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized they had been with Jesus. In other words, Peter and John, you know what these guys are like? They're just like us. They're just ordinary, common people like us. And yet, they are bold for Jesus. And you say, how is that possible? It's possible because they had been with Jesus. And the power of the gospel had radically changed their lives. They had a deep-rooted conviction in the life-changing power of the gospel. They believed what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that in the gospel there is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. The power of the gospel is real. And I would ask the same question. Man, do we believe this? I mean, do you really believe that? That there is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the life of death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we do, then who cares if we stutter or stammer? After all, it's not about us anyway, is it? It's all about Him. It's all about Jesus. It's about His life and what He's done on the cross and in His resurrection. And when we have that kind of conviction, then there wells up within us a boldness to proclaim that to people who desperately need to hear about the saving power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. So we remember the saving power of Jesus in our own lives. And then we realize the profound power of the gospel to save others. And the third key to boldness here is to rest in the sovereign power of God. After Peter and John are interrogated, they're threatened by the religious leaders, and then they're released. They go back to the other disciples. And Luke tells us in verse 23... And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. But notice what they do next. This is interesting. They pray. And notice how they pray. Here in verse 24, it says, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Did you notice how they begin their prayer? They begin with the words, Lord, you are God. And some of your Bible translations simply say, Sovereign Lord. Why? Is that, I mean, is that just a coincidence or is there something to that? Oh, no, I mean, listen, it's intentional. The God we pray to is the Creator God. He is sovereign, meaning he is the unrivaled authority. He has power and control over everything. And he is Lord. In other words, 
He is God alone who rules the universe. That is the God we pray to. And don't miss the significance of this. When Peter and John come back after the opposition they face, what do they do? Listen, they don't, they don't wring their hands in fear and fret. They don't devise a plan. They don't sit around and say, well, what are we going to do? Instead, they call out to the sovereign Lord of the universe and they declare that He is sovereign in their prayer and that the whole world is under His rule, that the seas and the stars obey His voice, that the kings do His bidding, and that as He speaks, history unfolds. And they even go on to declare that even the crucifixion of Jesus was all part of God's sovereign plan of redemption. All of this leads to the truth that they confessed in the face of opposition. And it's the same truth that we, we need to confess as a church. We need to confess even as individuals. And that is, our God is the Lord of all. He is sovereign over all. Think about how this truth that our God is sovereign over all served to sustain these disciples in the midst of opposition and even persecution. They were still confident in God's mission. They were confident that God's mission was unstoppable. They were not derailed. They were not intimidated. They were not giving up. They were not stopping to boldly declare the gospel because of some opposition here. They believed it was all according to the sovereign will of God. And that's, it's that confidence in the sovereign power of God that sustained them. And I would suggest it's the same confidence that ought to sustain us. So here's the takeaway. Boldness is strengthened. It's encouraged by fresh reminders of God's sovereignty. In fact, in this prayer, they declare that God is sovereign over creation. They declare that God is sovereign over his, Jesus' crucifixion. They declare that God is sovereign over his resurrection. And they declare that God is sovereign even over persecution. And if we're bold... If we're boldly proclaiming the gospel as we see the disciples doing here, we will encounter opposition, folks, and it may even cost us something. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 2.15 that he says it like this. He says that we are the aroma of Christ. In other words, we're a fragrance. And then he goes on, he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words... As we proclaim the gospel, we cause a reaction among people. Sometimes, my youngest son, I won't identify him by name, but I stand beside him and I'm like, son, you need a shower, bad. Bad. And it's causing a reaction among me, and it's not a good reaction right now. Shower, right now, son. And then I'm like, be sure to put on a little deodorant too while you're at it after you're done. You understand what we're talking about here. And Paul says this aroma takes on two different forms in verse 16. He goes on and says, to one it's a fragrance of death to death, and to the other a fragrance of life to life. And what I would remind us here is that when we share the gospel, whether we are the aroma of life or whether we are the aroma of death, either way it's not up to us. We have no control over that. It's not us that is making life, and it's not us that is making death. God is sovereign over that. 
He's sovereign over our salvation, and folks, he's sovereign over theirs as well. And so in light of that confidence in God's sovereignty, be bold for Jesus and rest in his sovereign power, which brings us to our last key to boldness. Rely upon the enabling power of the Spirit. In this prayer, the disciples first declared their confidence in the sovereign power of God, and then they brought their request to God. And notice what they pray for in verse 29. They say, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Now, that, you just gotta, you got to pause right there for a moment and just be in awe of that request. They've just come out of prison, they've just faced opposition for proclaiming the gospel, and what are Peter and John asking God for? Lord, bring us peace. Lord, take this trouble away from us. Lord, deliver us from these people. Lord, take away our problems. Lord, help us to find a safer place to live. No, 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 no. They are asking God, Lord, give us more, what? Boldness for Jesus. Which brings us to our last truth. Past boldness is no assurance of future boldness. And that truth drives us to our last takeaway. Boldness demands continual reliance upon God's Spirit. In order that God might receive the most glory, He has so ordained it that we do not receive boldness for a year. Have you figured that one out? We don't even receive boldness for a month or even for a week. Rather, we receive boldness for the day, for the hour, even for the moment, so that all along the way, as we're living as Christ followers, sharing our life with others, we are continually dependent upon God and His Spirit for that. It's what we see with Peter here in verse 8, when it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, we see it here with the disciples in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. I find it interesting. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, who was uh, that great 19th century preacher over in London, England, and they asked him why he needed to keep on being filled with the Spirit. And this great preacher's reply was simple yet very profound. Because I leak. Because I leak. Listen, that wasn't true just for Charles Spurgeon. It was true for Peter and these early disciples, and it's also true for each one of us as Christ followers here today. We leak. And we need to be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, we don't necessarily need more of the Holy Spirit. we got all the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But we need to continually submit to the Spirit that already dwells within us. And we need to continually rely on the Spirit's power for boldness. Boldness for Jesus. Boldness to proclaim what Peter proclaimed about Jesus in verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So let me ask you. Do you know that Jesus? This Jesus of Acts chapter 4 that Peter's proclaiming. Do you know this Jesus? The Jesus who died on the cross. 
the Jesus who rose again? Have you been so convicted of your sin that there's been a time in your life where you have repented of your sins and you have come to the cross, run to the cross, and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, in this Jesus of Acts 4? Only this Jesus that Peter proclaims offers forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Salvation is only found in this Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so now, when we come to the Lord's table, as we are in a few minutes here, in just a moment, to participate in communion, we remember this. This is the Jesus we proclaim. We remember His sacrifice on the cross. And that His shed blood paid the penalty for our sins and provided us with salvation. And so, this morning here, when you eat the bread that represents His body, when you drink the juice that represents His blood, remember His death, and remember this is the Jesus we proclaim in the Gospel. But also remember what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, 26. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. So we also remember that Jesus lives and He is coming again. That was kind of sappy. He's coming again. For those who believe in Him as their Lord and Savior. So as you come to the Lord's table, let His coming again motivate you to boldly proclaim this Jesus, the one who died on the cross and rose again and is coming back with their heads bowed. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the courage of Peter in proclaiming the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we be so overwhelmed with the reality of God's love for us in Christ's death and resurrection that by the power of the Spirit, we cannot help speaking about Him to others. Oh Lord, forgive us for our indifference. Forgive us for our lack of concern. Lord, break us and burden us for the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The music's going to play, and as it plays, followers of Jesus Christ are invited to participate in communion at the four tables around the auditorium. And you don't need to be a member here at our church to participate in communion, but you do need to be a, a member of God's eternal family, a baptized believer. And so if you're a guest here, or perhaps even an attender who is not prepared to participate in communion, you may remain seated and, and simply watch as others participate. And what you will see as you watch is that the bread and the juice is a picture of a Savior who gave His life so that you can have eternal life in the forgiveness of sins. And so for those who are prepared to participate, there are four tables that you may stand to and walk to and once you get the bread and the juice, you may take it back to your seat. Going to start playing here, and at your convenience, you may go.